You are listening to the Strangers and Pilgrims podcast. Soldiers, sailors, marines, sound off! Gates and hiya, mates. This is old Hepcat Harry Bonzel bounding up to sound off with your favorite foursome. Yes, brethren, your votes and ballots invited these mellow concertos, so let's spread the nectar and iron them out. This election caused plenty of excitement, according to Special Service, Los Angeles, USA, one of those neck-and-neck affairs that's decided by a photographic finish. Well, if you like jam and no flim-flam, latch on to the melody and lyrics of the number four jam on your tune parade. Ballots from Panama were marked with the following words. In the blue of the evening, Tommy Dorsey's band with Frank Sinatra under the gun. Go! Incidentally, that tune is on its way to the top at this sound off. 
We now bow to one of the finest things to sprout wings in several semesters. Definitely ahead of the first magnitude, we salute its initial unveiling under the label of number two on your favorite four. A boatload of boats from up Alaska way are trickling in every day for coming in on a wing and a prayer. And gang, you'll tip your helmet stole Professor K. Kaiser and his crew for this knocked-out edition. Coming in on a wing and a You've just heard the new rave back here at home. Attention, men, jump out of your skin. Here comes your sound-off special for this gravy train, and man, it is Dixieland. Stuff that was born in New Orleans and reared in Chicago now takes the stand to show you cats the this and that's of the finer things in swing. It was every man for himself in those golden days that many of our best musicians started with that same gut-bucket style, like Tommy Dorsey, Benny Goodman, Jimmy Dorsey, Louis Armstrong, Count Basie, and the boy you're about to hear... Muggsy Spanier. The tune, the old ever-loving Dipper Mouth Blues. Blow that thing, Muggsy! Thank you. 
you can feel that way down to here. That solid beat is strictly all reed. Now we get around to the blue ribbon counter where we only exhibit the favorite of the majority. It would be sheer folly to try to give you the exact total of the ballot sent in for this melodic masterpiece. It caught on and it's hanging there. Number one on your tune parade, a ditty that found staunch support from the wax over in Africa. To top it off, they even named the band they wanted to play it. So dig Freddie Martin's crew with Gene Walsh singing, Don't Get Around Much Anymore. Take it, Mr. Ale. <laughs> favorite because you voted them so. Every vote helps now, so why not start in right away on an election tour and see how many ballots you can round up for that pet song of yours. I hope you spear enough to land a winner in the charm circle. Send all votes and ballots to Special Service, Los Angeles, USA. Did you catch the location? Special Service, Los Angeles, USA. That's it. And this is old Hepcat Harry Bonzel reminding you that Sound Off is presented for you fighting men of the United Nations by the Special Service Division of the War Department of the United States of America. <laughs> 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 
Pick up a copy of Conflict with Shadows today from your favorite online bookstore. Ah, uh, don't touch that dial. Listen to... <laughs> Breakfast is over with at the Bumstead house, and the children, Cookie and Alexander, are upstairs. Dagwood and Blondie are lingering over their coffee, as Dagwood suffers a few pangs of fatherhood. Uh, Blondie, dear. Yes, dear. Uh, Blondie, do you think Alexander still uh, likes me? What? Oh, of course he still likes you, Dagwood. Mm. Now, whatever put that idea oh, in your head? Oh, nothing. It's just that we used to be pretty close to each other. Real pals. Why, we played ball together and boxed and fished oh, and... Oh, I think it's just that Alexander's found some little friends of his own age, that's all. Yeah. You know, boys like Jimmy Decker. Yeah. He never wants to spend any time with me anymore, Blondie. Seems that he'd rather play with Jimmy's pet skunk. <laughs> hey, what's a skunk got that I haven't got? <laughs> well, there must be something, dear. You yeah. know how boys his age are. Yeah. Well, maybe I haven't given him enough fatherly affection. Oh. Mm -hmm. You know, I used to read to Alexander all the time or make up stories for him. And, well, I never make up stories for him anymore. No, you're too busy making up stories for me. Yes, I'm too busy to make up the Oh, Blondie. Oh, I'm just teasing you, darling. Yeah, gosh. Remember how little Alexander used to sit here on my knee when he was a little baby? Yes, dear. But he's changed quite a bit now. Yeah. Well, he was changed quite a bit then, too, dear. <laughs> well, Alexander's pretty big to sit on your knee. Mm. Oh, I hear them coming downstairs. Yeah. We're going out, Mother. All right, Cookie. We'll see you later, folks. Oh, uh, uh, wait a minute. Uh, uh, Alexander. Yeah, Pop? Uh, come here a minute, son. Alexander, little pal. Huh? Yeah. After all, Alexander, which is more important, a skunk or your old Pop? Well, you are, Pop. Yeah, yeah, you see, Blondie? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Alexander, mm -hmm. come here a minute now. Uh, let me tell you a story. Sit right here on my knee, huh? Gosh, I'm pretty happy to sit on your knee, Pa. Oh, nonsense. You're still my little boy? Come on, sit right here on his knee. Well, okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah that, that's it. <laughs> my, it's been a long time since I've had my little baby dumpling on my lap, haven't you? <laughs> 
Once upon a time, uh, maybe... You better shift over to my enemy, uh, Alexander. Okay. Am I too heavy, Pop? Oh, no, no. Uh, just shift over here. That's better. Now, where was I? Oh, yes. <clears throat> well, once upon a... This is... Back on this knee, Alexander. <laughs> oh, yeah. Once upon... Well, maybe you better sit on both knees, Alexander. <laughs> If I'm too heavy, Pop, I'll be glad to... No, 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 you're not too heavy. It's just that... Just sit on both Alexander. Yeah, that's better now. Let's see. Oh, yeah, now. Once upon a time, maybe you'd better stand up while I tell you the story, Alexander. Maybe you'd better forget the story altogether. Yeah, maybe so. I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay, Pop. I understand. You children run along and play. All right, Mother. Come on, baby dumpling. Cut that out, cookie. Goodbye, folks. <laughs> Goodbye, children. Yeah, yeah but I... I uh, yeah. You see, Blonda, he just doesn't like me much anymore. Oh, Dad, would that silly? He's just too big to be treated like a baby. Mm. Now, don't worry about him. He's a very happy, well-adjusted boy. Yeah, well, just the same, I'm going to start spending more time with him. Good. And when I come home tonight, I'm going to read to him. That's what I'm going to do. There's no use putting it off, Blondie. There's no use procrastinating. Yes, I always say procrastination is the thief of time. What do you always say? Well, I always say something that's a little bit easier to pronounce. <laughs> oh, Mom, can I talk to you? Of course, Alexander. Here, grab a dish towel and help me while you're talking. Okay. Now, what's your problem? Mom, I'm worried about Pop. Well, he's been acting, well, sort of childish. <laughs> well, maybe his feelings were a little hurt when you weren't interested in having him read to you. I know. It seems to me that there ought to be a lot of things that you and your father both would be interested in. Oh, sure. Money, for instance. Yes. <laughs> you and your father always have a great time keeping your allowance straight, don't you? Well, I'll say we do, Mom. How does the allowance situation stand now? Pretty good. I'm two weeks ahead on it, and Pop thinks he's one week behind. Oh, uh, Alexander. Yeah, Pop? Hey, uh, how'd you like to play a little game with me, huh? Well, now, there's a chance to have some fun together. Sure, I'll be glad to play a game with you, Pop. Mm -hmm. What do you want to play? Chess or checkers? No, how about some tiddlywinks, huh? Okay, Pop, get the tiddlies out. Dagwood, that sounds like the children are home for dinner. They still ought to be ready in a few more minutes. Yeah, Blondie, uh, I'm going to try again with Alexander. There's just no reason why we can't be better pals. That's right, Dagwood. But why don't you let him come up to your age instead of your going down to his? Yeah. <laughs> well, well, we'll see, dear. We'll see. Gee, Mommy, that smells so good. Yeah, what is that, Mom? Just plain old mulligan. Mulligan? Uh, sure, like old Mulligan, the janitor at the dinner's company. <laughs> oh, Daddy's teasing you, Cookie. It's just an ordinary old stew. Yeah, it's old Mulligan. <laughs> <laughs> no matter what it is, it sure smells wonderful. Yeah, almost mm -hmm. as wonderful as a slum gullion I used to cook over an open campfire. What in the world is slum gullion? Well, it's Mulligan that's gone slumming. <laughs> Ah, yes. I made it on a camping trip once, and boy, was it good. Mm. 
We'll have to take a trip to the mountains sometimes, Alexander. Golly, Pop, could we? Just you and me? What? You, you mean that you'd really like to go on a camping trip? Just you and me? I'd like that better than anything in the whole world. Good grief. Look at the mistakes Bumstead made in this. I better hung for him to come in right away. Oh, uh, did you honk for me, Mr. Diddies, or, or are you keeping a duck in your desk? <laughs> I honk for you, Gooseface. Oh. <laughs> and when I honk like this, that means get in here fast. Oh, it does, huh? Well, what does it mean if you honk it like this? <laughs> Uh, I'll stop playing with that. <laughs> now listen. You fool around with that and I'll double you up and shove you into the file under B for booby. Oh. <laughs> Just look at this order you made out. Well, 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 what's the matter with it, bossy? I don't call me bossy. <laughs> I'm not a cow. Yeah. <laughs> Of course not. You're all bull. Why <laughs> you cut that out? <laughs> Look at this order. Right. One thousand feet of tuberfores. Yeah. Two seven-foot bamboo fishing poles. Five hundred sacks of cement and two sleeping bags. Well, well <laughs> you, 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 you see, uh, J.C., I guess my mind just wasn't on my work. I, I was thinking about the trip Alexander and I are going to take to the mountains. How you manage in the mountains, I'll never know. It was? You'll probably scream for help at the first chipmunk that snarls at you. <laughs> no, no, animals don't bother me, J.C. <laughs> I'm not afraid of them. Not even skunks. Just brotherly love, huh? <laughs> you know something? Once a wild razorback hog came charging at me and I didn't move a muscle. Razorback's a danger. Didn't he hurt you? No, but I had a close shave. It sounds just like there's a jackass in here. I can't help laughing, Mr. Dillis. And, and you know what they say, he whom laughs last. Not he whom, he who. Huh? He who, he who, he who. Hey, you're right, there is a jackass in here. books I got from the library. Well, very interesting. Let's see here. What's this? Through Darkest Africa with a Flashlight. Oh, I think that's a funny book about explorers. I hope so. And... Gee, I wish I hadn't bought these sleeping bags today. I bet they won't let me get on the bus with them. Holy smoke, here comes a helicopter. And it's going to land right here in the parking lot. Oh, it must be Mrs. Bob Orpington. Yeah, it's got to be a gold plated. Look at it. Mrs. Bob Orpington, you. Hi, 
in it, it bought both. And then, hey, how do you like your helicopter? Oh, simply splendid, splendid, except for a few little things. Ah. This morning, my neck nearly came unscrewed. <laughs> oh, how did that happen? Well, a newspaper caught on one of the big propeller blades, mm. and I was trying to read the headlines while it was whirling around. <laughs> Trying to read the label on a phonograph record while it's spinning, huh? <laughs> I know. Precisely. Oh, but otherwise it's very handy. Oh, yes. Especially for dispersing midnight revelers. Mm. Oh, yes. <laughs> you know, one night some sailors were outside my door singing, Hi, you blow the man down. Well, I simply sent Orson out with the helicopter and it blew all the men down. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, you wait till the Navy hears about this. Mm. Oh, you know, dear boy, you'd make a very good sailor. Yeah? <laughs> My, uh, I'm sure you'd become a petty officer. Oh. <laughs> oh, you're just saying that. You're so young, so yeah. handsome, and uh, you make me feel so nautical. <laughs> grotesque objects down there on the sidewalk. Uh, oh, those are my feet. Uh, oh. <laughs> oh, I, I guess you uh, you must mean these sleeping bags, huh? Oh, so, so that's what they are. Uh, uh, little Alexander and I are going to go camping and sleep out in the open. Hmm. Do you like roughing it, Mrs. Buff Orpington? Uh, no, dear boy, I prefer smoothing it. <laughs> Mr. Buff Orpington, the man who invented the chicken, you know, he always used to say, he always used to say, the art of doors is wonderful. It's too bad there's so much of it outside but nobody sees it. <laughs> oh, well, I must be saying goodbye, so I'll say it. Goodbye, fly away, Austin. <laughs> My goodness, what have you there? Yeah, well, uh, camping equipment, my good woman. Hello, Daddy. Mm -hmm. Gee, what are those? Hi, Pop. Uh, you three, those are the snazziest sleeping bags I ever saw. Dad, yeah. you and Alexander aren't serious about going to the mountains, are you? Well, Blondie, we've been talking about it for two days, haven't we, son? Sure. Mm -hmm. Darling, uh, I don't want to spoil your fun. But you don't seem to realize that you haven't slept outdoors for years. Mm -hmm. And Alexander never has. Cheapers, Mom. What's so hard about sleeping outdoors? The ground. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Not only hard, but it's cold and wet and, mm -hmm. and bumpy and... Well, it's something you have to be used to, dear. You have to be conditioned to it. That's right. You have to be conditioned to it. Uh, your mother's right, Alexander. You do have to get air conditioned to sleeping outdoors. <laughs> <laughs> so, we'll start tonight. I'm glad you understand. What? You'll do what tonight? Sleep outdoors. Oh, oh, dear. Oh, boy, when it's bedtime, Alexander and I will take our little sleeping bags and head far out into the backyard. Dadwood, are you and Alexander all right out there in the backyard? Oh, we did fine, Blondie. Uh, you go to bed now, dear. Good night. Good night, Mom. Well, come on, son. Hop into that old sleeping bag. Okay, Pop. Just a second. Yeah. Hey, Rudy, what? Are you under there? Yeah, I, I was. <laughs> Alexander, what are you looking for? Oh, I just want to make sure Rudy, what isn't underneath my sleeping bag. 
Yeah, who's Worry Wart? My frog. Oh. <laughs> I call him Worry Wart because after I touch him, I always worry about getting warts. Oh. <laughs> he, he sleeps out here someplace. Yeah, well, let him find his own sleeping bag. Come on, let's, let's get going here. Now, let me zip up your old bag here. Yeah. Gee, this is swell. I'm as snug as a bug in a rug. Yeah. Night, Pop. Yeah. I see the voice. I see the voice. It's about o'clock at about time, yeah. Uh, what'd you say, Alexander? <laughs> I didn't say anything, Pop. I didn't, well. Uh, good night, son. Night, Pop. <laughs> <laughs> What's the matter, Pop? Alexander, we aren't alone. Someone just laid a cold, clammy hand on my forehead. Alexander, have you got a cold, clammy hand that croaks like a frog? Oh, that's worry work, Pop. I can see him. He's sitting right on your forehead. Get him off! Get him off! He might think my nose is a cricket. Get him off! <laughs> I got him, Pop. Okay, now. Look, Alexander, let's please, let's try and get just a little sleep now. Would you mind? Well, who's I said? Hi, Pop. Yeah. Oh, Pop. Huh? I'm awful thirsty. Tell Worry Wart to bring you a drink. I'm kind of hungry myself. Oh, I forgot to tell you. Mom said she put some sandwiches and milk in the basement. She did? (laughs) Well, come on. What are we waiting for? These sandwiches are swell. Yeah. You know, it's kind of nice and cozy down here in the basement. Yeah, it is. Gee, look, Pop. What? Forgot we had those folding cots down here. Mm Mm-hmm. They look pretty comfortable, don't they? eh? Yeah. Are you weakening a little bit, Alexander? No, Pop. Oh, neither am I. <laughs> I knew you'd like sleeping outside in your old sleeping bag. Oh, sure. I like sleeping outside my old sleeping bag. Yeah. You know, some people probably think it's better sleeping inside. Yeah, I know one. Yeah. I guess you'd really uh, rather sleep outside, huh? Under the stars? Well, I'm not so sure it's safe, Pop. One of those stars might fall on us. Yeah. Oh, you think so? Yeah, they might, yeah. It's dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's a good excuse. I mean, that's right. Yeah. There is an awful lot of stars up there, and some of them might get loose at that. Yeah. Well, well. What? Look, Pop, there's that cedar chest where Mom keeps her extra blankets. Well, well. <laughs> Alexander, let's stop kidding each other, huh? Okay. I'll bring in the sleeping bats and you make up the cots. Oh, that's a good idea. Tonight we'll get accustomed to sleeping outside, inside. <laughs> hey, you know, maybe tomorrow night we'll sleep outside. What oh, do you think? sure we will. Sure. We'll put the old sleeping bags in the corner of the basement and won't say anything about it. But tomorrow night we can make up our minds. Yeah. Sleeping outside sure is wonderful. Yeah. Especially if you have a roof over your head. <laughs> Another waffle, Dagwood? Yeah, no, thanks, Bondy, dear. I always heard it was unlucky to have 13. <laughs> well, it's just right. Gee, Daddy, um, I didn't know you were ever through eating. How about you, Alexander? Gosh, no, Mom. I'm up to my back teeth now. 
Well, after a night spent in the open air, I was expecting both of you to be as hungry as wolves. How did you like your sleeping bag? Uh, oh, uh, well, uh, uh, that's right, Mom. Uh, uh, Blondie, uh, please don't say anything to the neighbors about our sleeping in the backyard last night, will you, dear? Uh, you see, they wouldn't understand. Gentlemen, your secret is safe with me. It's safe with me, too, gentlemen. Yeah, oh, thanks. Uh, oh, I wonder who that is at the back door. Uh, come in. Good morning, nature boy. Uh -huh. I was going to visit you in the backyard last night, but then I remember the old saying, let sleeping bags lie. <laughs> hey, uh, Woodley, who told you that we were sleeping out? Why, it's all over Shady Lane Avenue. In fact, somebody is offering ten to one odds that you won't last a week. Why, Herb, who's doing that? Me. <laughs> well, so long, folks. Yeah, so long. There goes my old pal and buddy Woodley. A nice guy he is. Well, somebody at the front door now. I'll get it. I guess everybody's coming to congratulate you on spending the night outdoors. Hey, Alexander. Hey, hey we're heroes, huh? Uh, take it easy, Pop. Do Don't I? overdo it. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right, son, yeah. <laughs> Mr. Dithers, Dad, Mr. Dithers? Oh, Goody. What do you suppose? What do you suppose Mr. Dithers wants, Daddy? Mm, I don't know. Nothing more than my life's blood, I suppose. <laughs> Oh, good morning, Bumpson. I understand you slept outside last night. Oh, I did? I mean, yes, I did. <laughs> All night. Well, I can understand you sleeping, but when morning came, weren't you bothered by woodpeckers? You weren't bothered by anything in our sleeping... Woodpeckers? <laughs> we weren't bothered by anything in our sleeping bags, huh, Pop? Sleeping bags? Sure. Alexander and I got those little old sleeping bags, so we tried them out last night. You should have gotten a desk. You sleep better there than anywhere. <laughs> Sleeping bag is a cat. It's made so that it covers everything but my face. You might know they'd make it wrong. <laughs> well, I just hope this sleeping outside doesn't affect your work at the office. Uh, why, Mr. Diddy? Because if it does, I'll make you swallow a banana whole. And then reach down your throat and peel it. Oh, my. <laughs> Alexander. <laughs> hey, it's time to get up. Oh, already? Yeah. Gee, Pop, how much longer do we have to do this? You mean sneak down to the basement after everybody has gone to bed? Yeah. These cots are awful uncomfortable. Yeah, but think how much worse those darn sleeping bags were. That's right. Mm -hmm. Gee, I guess Mom would sure laugh at us if she knew we didn't want to go to the mountains anymore. <laughs> yeah, I guess she would. Oh, well. I can stand it if you can, Dad. Yeah, a boy, a boy. You're a real pal, Alexander. So are you, Pop. Huh? I am? <laughs> Do you know something, Alexander? I've always wanted to be a pal. Good morning, dear. Uh, Blondie, mm -hmm. uh, what are you doing up so early? Good morning, Mom. Dagwood, uh, I want to have a little talk with you and Alexander. Oh, sure, dear. Is something wrong? No, dear. It's just that, well, Dagwood, I want you to do something for me. Hey, you sound kind of serious. I am. I don't want you and Alexander to go to the mountains. Please, dear, for me. Uh, well, uh, Blondie, we've spent a lot of time getting air conditioned. Oh, <laughs> all right, you can go. Oh, no, 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 dear. For your sake, we won't go. <laughs> Okay, son? I'll say. I, I mean, sure, Pop. Of course, we had planned a little trip together, but if you... I still want you to have a trip together. 
You do? Yes. Mm. I was thinking how nice it would be for you to drive to Fremont for the weekend. Mm. I understand the bass fishing is just wonderful. Gee, Pop, that sounds like fun. Yeah, it sure does. But, uh, oh, no, it's out of the question. Where would we stay? We can't afford it. I thought of that, too. Mm. So, I scraped together $50 for you, darling. Gee, Pop, everything sure worked out swell. I mean... Yeah, 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 ne- never mind, Alexander, never mind. Uh, hey, uh, Blondie, dear, uh, just where did you get this $50? Well, I... Oh, what difference does it make? Just take the money and have a nice weekend, dear. Oh, it sounds wonderful, Blondie. Oh, and boy, we're all toughing up from sleeping outside these last few days. There's nothing like sleeping on the hard ground to put you in fighting trim. Don't overdo it, Pop. I know you've suffered getting into condition. Yeah, but we didn't mind, dear. Uh, uh, wait a minute. Uh, but uh, really, where did you get the $50? Oh, that. Mm. Well, dear, I returned your sleeping bags to the store almost a week ago. <laughs> Blondie Show was heard in the United States over NBC, the National Broadcasting Company, and has been rebroadcast to our servicemen and women overseas by the United States Armed Forces Radio Service, the voice of information and education. you can double your listening pleasure by subscribing to the strangers and pilgrims podcast for only 99 cents a month you gain access to more shows for your enjoyment subscribe now and happy listening the mercury theater on the air Columbia Broadcasting System takes pride in bringing you Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air in another broadcast of the unique series which signalizes radio's first presentation of a complete theatrical producing company. For these programs, the regular member stations of the Columbia Broadcasting System are joined by the coast-to-coast network of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Tonight, the Mercury Theater turns to another of the great narratives and adventure stories of the world of literature. The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas. And here again is the director, the star, and producer of these broadcasts, Orson Welles. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. There is no reasonable explanation of Alexander Dumas. He was a rich man. We note with interest that he went bankrupt in the theater. He was a revolutionary. His grandfather was a marquis. His grandmother was a negress. He was born as Napoleon became emperor. He died in poverty as the Germans marched into France. He wrote The Count of Monte Cristo as a newspaper serial, and shortly after the last installment, a ball and a bullfight were organized for him in Seville, and finally in Algiers, 
the customs men let his baggage through without examination. Such things don't and can't happen today, but then neither does Alexander Dumas himself, the wildest romance of a man who could and did openly maintain at 70 numerous establishments and a literary factory as well whose quantitative output is equaled in the arts only by Rubin's studio. There's a good story about what Dumas Père told Dumas Fils. Father, said the inventor of Camille, I have just read your latest book. Have you, my son, said Dumas Père? What's it about? I'm not sure I have. It is no secret and no shame either that the Chateau Monte Cristo was haunted by many ghostwriters and that its owner signed his name to more books than anyone could ever write. It is not expected of Pharaoh that he build with his own hands his own pyramids. And the mere blueprint of one Dumas plot is an airtight alibi for a whole career. Of all these, out of question, the most gloriously complex, possibly the most impossible, a mathematical miracle, as perfect as watchworks and as big as Pittsburgh, among hundreds, one Dumas plot persists as the most ingenious tall story ever perpetrated by the mind of man. God's vengeance on radio scriptwriters and your indestructible delight in spite of us. Here, then, is a humble 57 minutes' worth of the Count of Monte Cristo. In the year 1815, I, at Mondantes, was first mate of the pharaoh, bound for Marseille from Smyrna, Trieste, and Naples. The day we left Naples, the captain was attacked by a fever and died within three days. On the 28th day of September, we sighted the coast of France. Some hours later, we rounded the Chateau d'If and entered Marseille Harbor. Monsieur Morel, the owner, came abroad. Good day, Monsieur Morel. Ah, good day, Monsieur Danglars. You've heard of the misfortune that's befallen us, Monsieur Morel? Yes, yes, you mean poor Captain Leclerc. He was a brave and an honest man. And a first-rate seaman, grown old between sky and ocean. Well, a man needs not be old, I'm glad to know his business. Edmund Dantes, your mate there, seems to understand his thoroughly. Hey, let go the anchor! <laughs> you see, he fancies himself captain already. And so, in fact, he is. Monsieur Morel, at your service. You called me, I think. Yes, that is. I'm told you stopped a day and a half at the Isle of Elba. Why? I don't know, sir. You don't know? No, sir. It was to fulfill the last instruction of Captain Leclerc when he was dying. He gave me a packet to be delivered on the island. Ah. You did right, Dentist, to follow Captain Leclerc's instructions, though if it were known that you delivered a packet to the island, it... Might get you into trouble. How could it get me into trouble, sir, if I don't even know what it was? I was delivering. Beg your pardon, sir. Here, the customs officer's coming alongside. Hey there, lower the companionway. Well, Monsieur Morel? Yes, Monsieur Danglars? Edmund Dottis gave you satisfactory reasons for his landing at Alba? Oh, yes, quite satisfactory. <laughs> so much the better. Yes, it was Captain Leclerc who gave orders for this delay. Talking of Captain Leclerc... Has Dottis given you a letter from him? To me? No, was there one? I believe that besides the packet, Captain Leclerc had confided a letter to his care. Of what packet are you speaking, Dangla? Of that which Dottis left at the Isle of Elba. 
How do you know he had a package to leave with the Isle of Elba? I was passing close to the door of the captain's cabin, which was partly open. I saw him give the letter and the packet to Dante's. He didn't speak to me of it, but if there was any letter, he'll give it to me. Dungra, you'll report to the office this afternoon with the bills of lading and the storage plans. Good day. Good day, Monsieur Morel. It's a wonderful thing to be home again after three months at sea. See the places you've grown up in as a boy in the streets full of people. I found my father in the little dark room where he lived on the fourth floor of a house in the Rue du Noyer. Father. Oh, Edmund. Father. What is it, are you ill? Father, what's wrong with you? No, no, my boy, my son, no, but I... I didn't expect you in the joy and surprise of seeing you so Father, suddenly. Father, listen to me. I'm to be captain at 20, a captain with... 3,000 francs pay and a share in the profits. Isn't that more than I could have hoped for? Yes, yes, dear boy. Much more than we could have expected. <laughs> Snout, young dog, your son, eh, Dandies? In the doorway stood our neighbor, the tailor, Caderousse. Captain, eh? I know someone below the church of San Michel who won't be sorry to hear about this, eh, Dandies? Mercedes? That's who he means, Father. And now that I know your will, your consent, I'll go to her. I'll go, dear boy, and heaven bless you in a wife, as it blessed me. In a wife? How fast you go, Father Dante's. She isn't his wife yet, as far as I know. She soon will be. Yes, yes, but you were wise to return when you did, my boy. Well, Caterus, what do you mean by that? Oh, I don't mean anything in particular. Mercedes, a very fine girl, and fine girls never lack suitors. There's one in particular, a cousin of hers, I think he is. Bernard Mondego. I've even heard it What's said... that? Oh, don't worry, my boy. Now that you're captain, who could refuse you? You say that if I were not a captain... I didn't say that, my boy. I oh. didn't say that. No offense, man. My boy, no offense. I went into the street, down past the church of Saint-Michel, into the fisherman's quarter. Mercedes! Mercedes! You're back. We were in each other's arms. The burning sun of Marseille covered us with a flood of light. At first I saw nothing but her face raised to mine. The shining eyes. The eager lips. Then suddenly in the room behind us I saw the face of a young man. Pale and threatening. And I saw that he had his hand on a knife at his belt. Mercedes, who is this man? Mercedes, I did not expect to meet an enemy here in your house. There is no enemy. This is my cousin. We've been friends since childhood. The man is the man whom, after you, Edmond, I love best in the world. Well? Give me your hand, Fernand. Is your name Edmond Dantes? Fernand Mondego came forward. For an instant I saw a look of deadly hatred in his eyes. Then quickly, without giving his hand... He went past us and out into the street. Ah, 
betrothal feast of the gay affair in the South. Monsieur Morel removed every difficulty. The papers were soon drawn up. The arrangements were simple. Mercedes had no fortune. I had none to settle on her, and the wedding was set for two. All our friends were there, and the crew of the Pharaoh and Mercedes people from among the fishermen. Edmund Dantes. What do you want of me? Edmund Dantes, in the name of the law, I arrest you. Arrest me? We duly acquainted with the reason for your arrest at your first examination. Officer. Officer, he is What's my son. Son. He's, He's done nothing wrong. He's a good boy. Edmund. Is it possible? In which case, have a reparation with your name? Edmund. Meantime, Edmund Dantes, you're under arrest. Why? Follow me. Prosecutor, sir? Yes. Your name? My name is Edmond Dantes. Give all the information in your power. Have you served under the usurper, Napoleon? No, sir. It is reported that your political opinions are extreme. My political opinions? Alas, I never had any opinions. I'm hardly 19, sir. What do you make of this, then? It is a letter, Monsieur Dantes. Well... Read it. Monsieur, the king's prosecutor is hereby informed by a friend of the throne and religion that one Edmond Dantes, mate of the ship Pharaoh, arrived this morning from Smyrna after having touched at Naples and the island of Elba. He's been entrusted by the usurper with a letter for the Bonapartist committee in Paris. Proof of this crime will be found on arresting him, but the letter will be found on his person or at his father's or in his cabin on board the Pharaoh. I'm sorry, sir. I don't understand it. Do you know the writing? No, sir. Whoever did it writes well. Now, have you any enemies? Not that I know of, sir. Now, answer me frankly. Not as a prisoner to a judge, but as one man to another. Is there any truth in this accusation? Not at all, sir. I swear by my honor as a sailor. Then I told him my story. I told him how Captain McClure on his deathbed had entrusted a packet to me and told me with his dying breath to deliver it to the island of Elba. What did you do then? What should I have done, monsieur? What every man would have done in my place. I sailed for the island of Elba. I delivered the packet and was given in return a letter to be delivered to a man here in Marseille. I did it because it was what my captain had told me to do. I landed here yesterday. That is all, sir. I see. Well, that sounds like the truth. Now, give up this letter you have brought from Elba. Give us your word that you will appear if you're called and go back to your friends. I'm free then, sir? Yes. But first, give me this letter. Here you are, sir. Very well. By the way, to whom were you to deliver this letter? To Francois Noirtier of this city. Francois Noirtier? Yes, sir. Why, do you know this man? A faithful servant of the king 
does not know conspirators. Have you shown this letter to anyone? To no one, sir, my honor. Nobody knows that you are the bearer of a letter from the Isle of Elba addressed to Francois Noirtier? Nobody, sir, except the person who gave it to me. Why, sir? What's the matter? What's the matter, sir? You give me your word of honor that you are ignorant of the contents of this letter. My word of honor, sir, but what's the matter? You're ill, sir. Shall I call for help? No, stay where you are. It is for me to give orders here, not you. I'm sorry. I am no longer able, as I had hoped, to restore you to liberty. Before doing so, there are formalities to be gone through. I'll try to make them as short as possible. The principal charge against you, as you know, is this letter. And you see what I do with it. You see? I destroy it. Oh, Monsieur de Villefort. Your goodness itself. Now then. Do you trust me? Order me, sir. I'll obey. Listen, this is not an order, but advice that I give you. Yes, monsieur. I shall keep you until this evening here in the Palais de Justice. Yes, sir. Should anyone else question you, don't breathe a word of this letter. I promise. You see, the letter is destroyed. You and I alone know of its existence. So if they question you about it, deny all knowledge of it. I will, sir. It was the only letter you had. It was. Swear it. I swear. Did you ring, monsieur? A guard entered. Villefort whispered something in his ear to which he replied by a motion of his head. Follow this man, Monsieur Dantes. He has his orders. I was taken to a cell. Presently it grew dark. Hours later, I heard steps coming along the corridor. By the torches they carried, I saw the glittering sabers and carbines of four gendarmes. Edmund Dantes. Have you come to fetch me? Yes. By the orders of the king's prosecutor? I believe so. Come with us. Is this carriage for me? It is for you. Get in. Get on board. Stern sheets with a guard on each side of me in the little boat. There, there. King's business. Lower the chain. The chain that closes the mouth of the port at night is lowered. Soon we were outside the harbor. My first feeling was one of joy at breathing the fine sea air again. Then a sadness as I saw the lights of La Reserve away to the left of me and heard the sound of voices and music coming through the open windows. Mm -hmm. 
Now we had passed the Tete de Mort. We were in front of the lighthouse. We were about to double the battery. Where are you taking me? You'll soon know. But I want to know... We are forbidden to give you any information. Now we had left the Isle Rotonel where the lighthouses stood and we were going past the fishermen's quarter. A few lights were visible from the water. If I cried out, perhaps Mercedes might hear me. I remained silent, my eyes fixed on the lights. The boat went on and presently a rising ground hid the lights. Then I saw that we were out to sea. Comrades! For the love of God, tell me where we're going. You're a native of Marseille and a sailor, yet you don't know where you're going. I have no idea. Well, unless you're blind or have never been outside the harbor, you must know. No! Look around you. Then suddenly, within a hundred yards of me in the night, I saw a dark, frowning rock with a tower on it, like a great black scaffold. The Chateau d'If. Quite right, my friend. The Chateau d'If. Help! Help! Let me go! Help! 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 I'm innocent! I'm innocent! I'm innocent! I'm innocent! Dantes! Dantes! Haven't you slept? I don't know. Are you hungry? I don't know. Do you want anything? I want to see the governor. The governor. I want to see the... I'm innocent. I'm innocent. I'm innocent! Another day. Another eternity. I threw out my food under the floor. I walked round and round the narrow cell like a wild beast in its cage. I tore up the straw of my mattress. Dantes! Well, are you reasonable today? I want to see the governor. I've told you that's impossible. Why is it impossible? It's not allowed. I want to see the governor. Take my advice, my friend. Don't brood over what's impossible. You'll go out of your head. You think so? We had an instance of it here in this cell. The priest who was here before you... He kept offering the governor a million francs for his freedom. In the end, he went out of his head. When was he in this cell? Two years ago. Was he set free? No. He was put in a dungeon. Listen to me. I want to see the governor. If you don't let me see the governor someday, I'll hide behind the door. And when you come in, I'll dash your brains out with a stool. That's it. Hey, put that stool down. Are you going to let me see the governor? Put it down. Put that stool down. Put it down. Where do I see the governor? Yes, yes, yes. You shall see the governor at once. That's better. It's better. Hurry. Hurry. Presently, the jailer returned with four soldiers. By the governor's orders, take the prisoner to the floor below. The dungeon, then? That's right. We put madmen... With madness. You don't understand it. I tell you, I'm innocent. I'm innocent. I'm innocent. 
Months went by underground, foul, humid, and dark. Every day, twice a day, morning and evening, the jailer came to my cell and put down the vile food and went away without speaking to me. My hair and nails had grown long, and my skin was white as a leper's. I'd been proud the first months. Now I began to beg. I begged to be moved from this dungeon to another. I begged to be allowed to walk about. I begged for books. Nothing was granted. I spoke to the jailer when he brought me my food. He rarely answered me. But to speak to a man, even though mute, was something. I tried to speak when alone, but the sound of my own voice terrified me. After what must have been three or four years, the governor of the Chateau Deef was transferred. The new man never troubled to learn my name. I was no longer Edmond Dantes. Number 34. I took to praying, but not as men pray in prosperity. In my prayers, I laid out every action of my life before the Almighty. Still, I remained a prisoner. Then a deep gloom took possession of me, and then furious rage and savage thoughts of revenge. And wildly, I dashed myself against the walls of my prison. I tore at my own flesh with my nails, and then in the end... In the end, I began to think of dying. I swore that I would starve myself to death, so every morning and every evening I threw out through the small grated window all the food the jailer brought me, every bit of it, at first gaily and then thoughtfully, and then with regret. I held the plate in my hand for an hour at a time, gazing at the morsel of bad meat, of tainted fish, of black and moldy bread. Then I remembered my oath and threw the dish away. One day, I found I had not sufficient force to throw my supper out of the window. The next morning, I could hardly see or hear. I knew I was dying. The day went by. I felt a sort of stupor creeping over me. The gnawing pain at my stomach had ceased. My thirst had abated. When I closed my eyes, I saw myriads of lights dancing before them. I was on the edge of that mysterious country called death. Suddenly, a little after dark, I heard a hollow sound in the wall against which I was lying. I sat up and listened. It was continual scratching as if made by a huge claw or some iron instrument scraping against the stones. Then all was silent. Soon afterwards it began again. Nearer. And more distinct. Perhaps it was only a workman repairing a neighboring dungeon. I would soon find out. Continued. With my earthenware jug, I knocked against the wall with a sound came. Then, 
The sound stopped. The night passed in complete silence. I never closed my eyes. Three days passed. Three long days. And never a sound. At last, on the fourth evening... Whoever it was was quite close to me now. I wanted desperately to help him. But I had nothing, no knife or sharp instrument. I smashed my oven with a jug. That night I moved my bed out from the wall and started to scrape the plaster with a piece from my broken jug. Soon the fragments of plaster began to fall away. In three days I uncovered a large stone. The next day about noon the stone began to move. How long have you been here? Since the 28th day of February, 1815. Your crime? I'm innocent. And you? Who are you? I am number 27. How long have you been here? Since 1804. 20 years. All that night we worked. Then, just before dawn, a portion of the floor in my cell gave away. And from the bottom of this passage, the depth of which it was impossible to measure, appeared the head, then the shoulders, and lastly the body of a man. To this man, I owe all that I possess, all that I know, all that I have become. In the prison, he was known as the Mad Priest. I never learned his name. For eight years, we saw each other every day, using the tunnel he had dug through the solid rock, concealing the mouth of the passage with stones carefully fitted in place. By the sundial he had traced on the wall of his cell, we knew the hours of the guard's visit. The rest of the day we were together. He had been a great scholar in his day. And all that he knew, he taught me with infinite loving patience. Day after day, year after year. Then, one morning when I went down, I found him standing in the middle of his cell. Pale as death. Quick, Dante's quick. Listen to what I have to say. What is it, Father? Tell me. I beseech you. What's the matter? I am dying. Help me to my bed. See? Half my body is paralyzed already. Here, Father. Ah, thank you, my son. Now listen to me. All is over with me. This night or tomorrow, 
I shall be dead. But, Father... I know the illness. There is no hope. And I shall never leave this place now. Before I die, there's something I want to give you. In his hand, he held a morsel of paper tightly rolled together. A half-burned paper on which were some lines of gothic character traced with a peculiar kind of ink. This paper, my child, is my treasure. From this day forth, it belongs to you. Your... your treasure? Oh, yes. I know what's passing through your mind at this moment. Even now, you, like all the others... But be assured, my child, I am not mad. This treasure exists. Read what it says. This treasure which may amount to the club in April 14. See, see? I see nothing but broken lines and unconnected words. Yes. To you who read them for the first time. But to me, who have grown pale over them by many nights study who have reconstructed every phrase, completed every thought. Have you ever heard of the great Spada treasure? I've heard sailors talk of it, yes. For ten years, I worked for the house of Spada. That paper you have asked is what is left of the will of Cardinal Spada, murdered by Roderick Barza. Now, take this and put the two pieces together... And read. The 25th day of April, 1498, being invited to dine by His Holiness Alexander VI, and fearing for my life, I declare to my nephew Guido Spada, my sole heir, that I have buried in a place he knows, in the caves of the island of Monte Cristo, all I possessed of ingots, gold, money, jewels, and diamonds, which treasure may amount to nearly two million of Roman crowns, which you will find in the farthest angle of the island cave, and this treasure I bequeath and leave entire to him as my sole heir, Rodrigo Sparta. Ten million crowns. Yes, a hundred million francs of our money. Think of the good a man could do in the world with a hundred million francs. Yes. And now I am dying. With my dying breath, I leave this treasure to you. Pray God you'll be more fortunate than I. But I have no right to it, sir. You are my son, Dantes. You are the child that God sent to console me in my captivity. Two days later, in fearful agony, he died. I closed his eyes and laid him out to rest as well as I could. That night, the governor of the prison came down to look at the body. Well, the madman's gone to look after his treasure. With all his millions, he hasn't enough to pay for a shroud, eh? Is the iron heated? Yes, sir. Apply it to the soles of his feet. From where I stood in the secret passage, I could smell the sickening odor of burnt flesh. He's dead, all right. Poor devil. He was a priest. Get him the newest sack you could... What time shall we bury him, sir? The usual. 
When the cell was empty again, I went in. On the bed at full length, and faintly lighted by the light of a single candle, was visible a sack of coarse cloth. In it was stretched a long and stiffened form. I unlaced the sack, drew the corpse out, and carried it through the tunnel to my cell. I laid it on my bed, turned the head to the wall, and covered it with a sheet. For the last time, I kissed the ice-cold brow. Then I went back to the dead man's cell. There's a job I can do. Brad, you are I could hear steps in the passage as the guards came down with a stretcher. Quickly, I laced up the sack around my body. I lay stiff, hoping they would not hear the beating of my heart. Here we go. You take the head. I'll take the feet. Uh, he's heavy enough for an old man. They say every year adds half a pound to the bones. Uh, oh, it much. Careful, man. Steady. While I open this door. Lord, it's cold up here. Yeah, pleasant morning for a dip in the ocean. A bit chilly, I'd say. Have you got the weight? Here it is. Tie it on, round his feet. That's right. Tight. See if you can do it any tighter. That's all right. That'll sink him. All right, now. Are you ready? One. Two. Hey, wait a minute. Get nearer the edge. The last one was mashed on a rock. We got the blame for it. All right, then. Come on, nice preaching of that. Let's go. One. Two. Three. listening to the CBS presentation of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in Alexander Dumas' Count of Monte Cristo. The performance will continue in just a moment. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. We continue now with the Count of Monte Cristo, starring Orson Welles with the Mercury Theater on the Air. In September 1834, there arrived in Marseille a man of about 38 or 40, of a pallor that was almost livid. He gave the impression of a man who had been enclosed for a long time in a tomb. Soon after landing, he inquired for a man by the name of Dantes. And hearing that he'd been dead for the past 14 years, he asked for a tailor called Caderousse. Are you Gaspard Caderousse? I am. Let's go inside, my friend. I have to talk to you. Well, what is it? Monsieur Caderousse, in the year 1814 or 15, did you know a young sailor by the name of Dantes? Dantes? Yes. Why do you ask? Is he alive? No, he died in prison. Died, eh? What did he die of? What do young, strong men usually die of in prison? He died of sorrow and a broken heart. And before he died, he begged me to clear his name. He gave me the names of the people here in Marseille who had been his friends. There are three, he said, besides my father and the girl I was betrothed to. 
One of them is Caderousse. He said that? The second is Dangla. Dangla? The third is Fernand Mondego. Mondego? You know these men? Know them? <laughs> Where in heaven's name have you been, my friend? There isn't a man in France who doesn't know them. Dangla is a millionaire. Has a banking house of his own. Baron Danga, he calls himself now. And Mondego's a count and a cabinet minister and an officer of the Legion of Honor with a house in Paris a block wide. <laughs> I could tell you something about these two. Not that it'll do much good now that he's dead. Who? Oh. That young fellow you were talking about, Dante's. I have a good mind to tell you anyway. You know who sent Edmund Dantes to prison? Well, I do. It was two men who were jealous of him. One for love and one for ambition. And do you know who they were? I'll tell you. Mondego and Dangla. I thought they were his friends. That's what he thought. What did they do? They denounced him to the police as a traitor. And was he a traitor? No more than you or I. Which of the two denounced him? Both, monsieur. It was Dangar who wrote the letter, and Mondego who put it in the post. When was this letter written? The car was there, the night before the wedding. How do you know? Were you there? I was at the next table. They thought I was too drunk to hear. I see. How about this girl Dantes was betrothed to? Mercedes? Yes. Yes, that's her name. What happened to her? Well, sir, that's a sad story. When Dante's was arrested, she was nearly mad with grief. Pitiful it was. Six months went by and there was no news of him. And every day there was her mother telling her he was dead and telling her to marry Mondego. She came to see old Dante's. Edmund is dead, he said to her. If he weren't, he would have returned to us. Then the old man died, and that left her quite alone. Still she waited, and still no word from him. Then in the end, after a year, she married Mondego. And now she's one of the greatest ladies in Paris. A year. She waited a year. What did you say? Nothing. Nothing. You say Edmund Dante's father died? Yes, soon after his son disappeared. What did he die of? If you ask me, he died of starvation. Starvation? The doctor had another name for it, but I know better. He locked himself up in his room and died of starvation. <laughs> day, the stranger appeared at the Palais de Justice and asked to see the prison records for the year 1815. He obtained permission to go through the case of a certain Edmund Dantes, imprisoned that year and subsequently reported as dead. He found everything arranged in due order, the denunciation, examination, and the magistrate's marginal notes 
He read the examination and noted with surprise that the name of Francois Noirtier, to whom the fatal letter had been addressed, never once appeared in it. There was a notation in the margin which read as follows. Edmond Dantes, an inveterate criminal to be kept in complete solitary confinement and to be strictly watched and guarded. It was signed de Villefort. Below in another hand was written, prisoner killed while attempting to escape. That night the stranger left Marseille, going north. Mondego. Dangla. Villefort, Mondego, Dangla. Find out everything there is to know about them. Every move they've made. Every word they've said. Every line they've written. Yes, sir. Find out about their homes. Their wives, their children, their friends. Yes, sir. Find out where they got their power. How they made their money, whom they robbed, whom they cheated, whom they murdered. November, Baron Dangler, head of the banking house of that name, received a visit from a new client. Monsieur le Baron Dangler. I have the honor of addressing the Count of Monte Cristo. You have, sir. Have you been in Paris long, sir? Since this morning. I have a letter here, sir, from the firm of Thompson and French in Rome. A letter of credit in your name. Good. And I take it that beginning today, my checks will be duly honored by your house. In this letter, sir, there is one thing not quite clear. Indeed. According to this letter, the Count of Monte Cristo is to have unlimited credit on our house. And what is there in that simple fact that requires explanation? Merely the term unlimited. Are you suggesting that Thompson and French are not looked upon as solvent bankers? No, no, no. It was not their solvency that I spoke of. I see. But the word unlimited in financial affairs is so extremely vague a term. To me, Baron, the word means exactly what it says. It means without limitation. I assure you, sir, that up to the amount of a million... I beg your pardon. I said that should you be hard-pressed, were you even to require a million... A million? My dear sir, for a trifle like that, I assure you, I should never trouble to open an account... One million francs. Excuse my smiling when you speak of a sum that I am in the habit of carrying in my pocketbook. I admit I am hardly... If you would prefer not to handle this account, Baron Dongler, I have letters similar to yours addressed to Baring of London and Rothschild of the city. You have no scruples in declining. I assure you I never... No, no, no. No, you merely wish to be convinced that your stockholders ran no risk, nothing more. 
very sound, Garantangla. I understand they include some of the greatest names in France. Am I right? The Duke de Mondego? The Baron de Villefort? It is not generally known that these oh, gentlemen... Of course. Of course. Of course. Now we understand one another. I should like to draw tomorrow the sum, shall we say, six million francs, half gold, half notes. Six million francs? Uh... As you say, sir. If I should require more, I shall let you know. Oh, by the way, Baron Dongler, write me tomorrow 10,000 shares of Austrian Commonwealth. You have some information, sir, about this stock? You will find, sir, that I never gamble, except in certainties. been more intrigued than it was that winter by the mysterious Count de Monte Cristo. Of his title, nothing was known save that he derived it from a small, uninhabited island off the coast of Corsica. The source of his fortune was equally obscure, yet his wealth seemed inexhaustible. The paintings in his house in the Champs-Élysées were valued at three million francs, and it was known that for his carriage wheels alone he had paid one million francs, yet far from diminishing... By the middle of December, successful speculation had increased his deposit at Dongler's bank from four to nearly six million francs. At the end of December, a ball was given by the Count and Countess de Mondego. man in Paris, the Count of Monte Cristo, Thomas de Montego. I am deeply honored. What is it, Mercedes? What is it? Are you ill? It's nothing, Fernand. Perhaps the heat of this room. It was kind of you to come, sir. Will you give me your arm, Count de Monte Cristo? I am honored, madame. Is it true, Count? What everyone is saying about you in Paris, that you've seen so much, traveled so far, and suffered so deeply. I have suffered deeply, madame. But now you are happy? No doubt, since no one hears me complain. Your present happiness, has it softened your heart? My present happiness does not equal my past misery. Are you not married? I married. <laughs> no, madame. You are alone, then. I am alone. You have no sister, no father. I have none. How can you exist thus without anyone to hold you to life? Madame, long ago, I loved a girl. I was on the point of marrying her, madame, when we were separated. I thought she loved me well enough to wait for me, and even to remain faithful to my grave. When I returned, she was married. Perhaps my heart was weaker than that of most, and I suffered more than they would have in my place. So, madame... And you are still, you still preserve this love in your heart. 
It is true, one can love only once. Did you ever see her again? Never. And you have forgiven her for all she has made you suffer? Yes, I have forgiven her. But only her? Do you still hate those who separated you? You still want to punish them? They will be punished, madame. But it is not I who will punish them. It is their own past. What have you found out about these men? Jangla. Jangla, native of Marseille. Banker, three times bankrupt. Convicted of using charity funds. Yes. Recently suspected of plunging heavily with borrowed funds. Villefort. Villefort, native of Marseille. Formerly king's agent in that city, where he acted as Bonaparte spy under the name of Francois Noachier. Noachier. Known to accept bribes. At present, prosecutor general of King's Court. Said to speculate heavily with Dangla's bank. Mondego. Mondego, native of Marseille. Dismissed from naval service for theft. Tried for murder, 1816. Deserted French army, 1824. 1828, betrayed Ali Pasha to Turks for two million piastres. Believed involved heavy losses, Dangla's bank. Dangla. He's in the private office, Baron de Villefort. Good morning, Villefort. Hello, Mondego. You're late, Villefort. What is it, Dangla? You sent for me in court. I hope it's something good this time. We need it. Just arrived a private message to the Count of Monte Cristo from Thompson in French, Rome. They've never been wrong yet. Does he know you intercept his messages, Dangla? Who cares? What does it say? Read it. Secret treaty signed tonight. Anglo-Italian due sharp rise. Buy all available shares, Thompson and French. Well? We are going to buy. Dangla, I'm worried. Everything you've touched has gone wrong lately. Those Belgian bonds, we lost half a million on them. Whose fault was that? On whose information? Can I have a Dangla if the government changes its mind? Gentlemen, gentlemen. Our situation is desperate. We've got to plunge. Things have been going badly lately. We have no choice. If it weren't for Monte Cristo's deposits, we'd been bankrupt three weeks ago. If that money should be called today or tomorrow or the next day, this bank is ruined. Dangla, I don't see what that has to do with us. Oh, you don't, don't you? If I go, you go. Make no mistake about that. Gentlemen. What do you propose to do about it, Dangla? It's our only chance to get out. I propose to buy every share of Anglo-Italian that comes into this market. With what? You forget, gentlemen. The Count of Monte Cristo has six million francs. Deposited in this bank. And what about this message? Does Monte Cristo get to see it? This message, gentlemen, was lost in transmission. Three hundred shares of Mango Italian. One hundred and two. Two hundred Mango Italian. One hundred and five. One hundred and ten. Five hundred Mango Italian. One hundred and ten. One hundred and seventy. One hundred and Three hundred shares of Italian. One hundred and thirty. Three hundred shares at one hundred and fifty. One hundred shares of Italian. One hundred and sixty. One hundred and seventy-five. 
Well, 62,000 shares. How much profit does that show? So far, three quarters of a million. And it's only a beginning. Who was selling? I don't know. I couldn't find out. Come in. Well, well, what is it? The Count of Monte Cristo to see you, sir. Tell him I'm not... Good afternoon, gentlemen. I hope I don't intrude. Dangla? De Villefort? Mondego? How fortunate. Gentlemen, I'm here to say goodbye. Goodbye? I have decided to leave Paris for a while. Perhaps forever. Before I go, there are certain things I have left to do. Monsieur Dangla? I am in need of money for my journey. My credit on your books as of tonight is six million francs. Less about a million to cover certain stocks I sold short today. Here is a check for five million francs made out to cash. My carriage is outside. I'll take half in notes. Half in gold. But surely... I beg your pardon. Surely, sir, such a very large sum... If you could conveniently wait for this money for 24 or for the most... I told you. Baron Dangra, I'm leaving Paris tonight. Oh, by the way, Baron, you may be interested to learn. Less than an hour ago, Anglo-Italian went into liquidation. At this moment, that stock is worth less than the paper on which it's printed. But the message from Thompson and French... That message was sent on my instructions three days ago. You see, gentlemen, I own Thompson and French. That is not true that the treaty... As far as I know, Mondego, there never was any question of a treaty. But it means... It means that you three gentlemen are ruined. It means that you, Dangla, have robbed the poor and the helpless for the last time. Uh, I'll prosecute you for this. I'll issue a warrant for your arrest. I don't think you will, Baron de Beaufort. In the first place, that message was addressed to me. In the second place, since noon today, there has been in the hands of the Minister of Justice a complete record of the career of Francois Noirtier, Baron de Beaufort, spy, thief, forger, uh, informer, what are you? perjurer. Who am I? Still, you do not know? I know you very well, Fernand Mondego. And tomorrow all Paris will know you for what you are. Deserter. Traitor. Murderer. Who are you? What have we done to you? You condemned me to a slow, horrible death. You killed my father. You deprived me of love, of freedom, of happiness. Stop! In God's name, who are you? I am the specter of a wretch you buried in the dungeons of the Chateau d'If. You guess it now, do you not? Or rather, you remember it. For notwithstanding all my sorrows... And my tortures. I show you now a face which has the happiness of revenge. And which is young again. A face you must often have seen in your dreams. Since your marriage, Mondego. With Mercedes, my betrothed. Yes, Mondego. I am Edmond Dantes.
Tonight, the Columbia Broadcasting System, through its affiliated stations coast to coast and the network of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, has brought you a performance of Alexander Dumas' great adventure story, The Count of Monte Cristo, as dramatized in the first-person singular by Orson Welles and played by the Mercury Theatre on the air. In the cast this evening, Ray Collins as the Abbey Faria, George Coloris as Monsieur Morel, Edgar Barrier as de Villefort, Eustace Wyatt as Caderousse, Paul Stewart as Old Dantes, Sidney Smith as Fernand Mondego, Richard Wilson as the officer, William Allen as a merchant, Anna Stafford as Mercedes, and Orson Welles as Edmund Dantes, the Count of Monte Cristo. The orchestra was directed by Alexander Semler, and Davidson Taylor supervised the production for CBS. Dan Seymour speaking. <laughs> Next week at this same time, another great narrative brought to life by Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air. The Man Who Was Thursday by G.K. Chesterton. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. America, you're beautiful. Why did you know that since we, the 7-Up Company, launched our Uncola campaign, you have started to think of us as an alternative to a cola? And you are rapidly discovering that 7-Up does have a fresh, clean taste that never lets you down. You are boldly going forth, finding out that the Uncola is great with food, friends, and fun. Some of you are even going so far as to order a hamburger and the Uncola. Good for you. That's the old spirit. Try it with Mom's apple pie. Yes, sir, America, you're doing fine. Soon we'll have a carton in every refrigerator and a case in every pantry. Seven up from sea to shining sea.
Thank you for listening to the Strangers and Pilgrims podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's shows. Visit our website at www.strangerspilgrims.com.